every high school has its groups. You notice it the first week that you show up to school, everyone's got their spot. You know the spot that you always go to eat lunch? You and your friends, you got the spot, and, and you know that when you show up to your campus every fall, there's the different groups of people that immediately assemble at your school. You've got the jocks that sit over there, you got the nerds over there, yeah, maybe you think you're a little bit of both. You got the, the really smart people that don't even eat lunch. They're just like working on their homework or something. Uh, you've got the musicians who go hang out in their spot in the band room or whatever. You've got the theater people that kind of just, you know, do whatever they do. I don't know what they do, right? They just go hang out with their group. You know, there's always these groups, right? And, and I feel like every high school is kind of the same. It's got the same sort of groups of people. And one of the things that's a challenge when you're a freshman, when you first show up, is like, where am I going to fit in? Right? What group am I going to be a part of? Am I going to join you know, the musician group? Am I going to join the jock group? Will I ever be a part of that popular group that sits at that one table that everybody wants to sit at that like, has literally been portrayed in like, every high school movie there's ever been? It's actually true. There are usually places where all the popular people go, and there's always this like, angst that every teenager, every high school student feels like, where am I going to break in? Where am I going to fit in? And really, that actually is getting at a deeper question that everyone has about their identity. Like, who am I? I know they might not ask it that way, but really when you're trying to fit in with the jocks and you're trying to fit in with the nerds and trying to fit in with the musicians, you're actually, if you don't know this, you're actually hitting at a very fundamental question that everyone has about themselves. Who am I and what am I here to do? Now, there's a lot of ways that you could answer that question, and the world will give you plenty of options for you to choose from, but I want to tell you this morning that God's Word has something to say for Christians that is so important about who you are, about your identity. Do you know that the Bible says that you actually don't have to go out and find the identity in yourself or out there in the world, that God actually already tells you who you are and what your purpose is? Everyone has a different path in life, but the reality is for Christians, God has a singular point and purpose for your life, however God will have you live it. Now, that's important because as you approach high school or whatever stage of life, God's word has something to say about who you are, and the most important thing for you to do if you're a Christian is to identify with what God says about you instead of trying to figure out who you are out there. People do that, and really that whole process comes back to nothing. But I want to tell you that the book of Ephesians, actually, one of the big reasons it's written is to tell Christians who they are and tell them to start acting like it. That's what the book of Ephesians is all about. That's why I think it's such a great book for us to study together because it's going to tell you, hey, this is who you are. You don't have to make up some self-identity. You don't have to come to a realization about yourself. No, you don't have to do that. God's word can tell you who you are. And now our response, if you're a Christian, is now I'm going to live like it. Now I'm going to act like it. I'm going to treat people like it. I'm going to understand God like whatever God says I am. That's super important for us to get. So I want us to look at the book of Ephesians because we're going to be studying it for the next about 30 sermons or so. That sounds like a long time. There's only six chapters. It's a really short book. If you were to just sit down and read it, it would probably only take you 15 minutes. Okay? The reason we're studying it so slowly is I want you to get as much as you can from this book, which is why I know I said this uh, in like the second sermon we did in True North, but I want you to make sure whatever notes you take, I want you to keep them in one place, whether you take them in a notebook, whether you use our worksheets and maybe have a binder or someplace you put the notes at home. I want you to capture all that you can capture from these sermons that myself and Roy will be preaching to you this year, and I want you to say, what does God say about me, who I am, and how I'm supposed to live? Those are like the most fundamental questions, and this book really gets at that. He starts out this book. This is Paul, who's that apostle who planted a lot of churches. 
He went, went all throughout the Roman world, and he would plant churches. He would share the, the truth of the gospel, that you can be saved from your biggest problem of sin, that you can have new life, and that one day your body will be resurrected for eternity if you trust in Jesus, the Messiah who died for you. That was his message. He went and he preached it all over, and people believed in Jesus. Okay? A lot like what happens today. Churches get planted, and then people show up, and now everyone's hearing the message, and some people are responding, some people are rejecting it. What he's going to do is write to the people who've responded rightly. He's going to write to these people in this church that he was a part of planting, and he's going to have a lot to say to them. Some correction, but a lot of encouragement. So I'm excited to study it this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So that's a little tagline. He's saying, this is who I am. Okay, this is where the letter's coming from. Paul, who's an apostle. Now that word apostle, we kind of just talk about in church, and is it some kind of title? Is it an office? Well, the word apostle means someone who's been sent by God. And whenever you see the word apostle in the New Testament, you're talking about a very specific role. God had selected a small group of people to be his special representatives, to be the people who could speak authoritatively about Jesus in a way that you can't, in a way that I can't, okay? What we can do is we can look to what they wrote, these apostles, they wrote us our New Testament, but they were hand-selected by Jesus. Literally, they, they saw Jesus, they talked to Jesus, he sent them and said, you're going to speak for me, and you're going to be my representatives. So he says, I'm an apostle, I've been sent by Jesus, and it's not just by Jesus, it's also by the will of God. And that theme is going to be what this morning's text is all about. He's going to keep talking about God's will. Now, that's an interesting big concept, but basically what it means is what God wants. That's the will of God, what God wants. What does God want? What does he want for you? What does he want for me? What does he want for this world? Paul says, I'm right in line with what God wants. That's why I'm an apostle, because God wanted me to be one. He says, who is he writing it to? To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. The saints. Now, the word saints, you also might think that's an interesting, weird term. Like, what does a saint mean? Is that someone who, you know, is in some uh, Catholic church that has a halo around their head? Is that what a saint is? Okay. In the New Testament, that's not what a saint is. What a saint is, is anyone who's considered holy. Anybody who's a Christian is a saint. So he's saying, I'm writing not just to everyone who goes to the church, I'm narrowing my focus to the real Christians who go to this church. Just like in every church, there's real Christians and there's fake Christians. And he says, I have a special message for the people who know God, for the people who are called saints. He keeps going. He says, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. The word faithful is actually just the word uh, faith, one who has faith. So I actually don't think it means that they're faithful. It means that they have faith in Jesus. And that's really what identifies a saint. who, Who are the saints in our church right now? Well, it's not the people who do a lot of good works. It's not the people who serve. It's just the people in our church who have all their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. That's what makes a saint, right? That's when a person becomes a saint. Not after you earn some status of like, oh, I have to do a lot in the church to become a saint. No, saints are whoever right now in this room trusts in Jesus for salvation. Here's what God's word says about you. You're a saint. Now, if you had to put that on your name tag at school or not at school, you don't wear name tags, but... um, if you at Chick-fil-A, you had to put Saint whatever. I mean, at Chick-fil-A, it might make sense. But um, if you, like, had to identify yourself as that, that now changes your identity a little bit, doesn't it? To be called, wait a minute, if I trust in Jesus, that makes me a saint? Am I supposed to live like a saint? The book of Ephesians keeps saying, yeah. It doesn't say, yeah, Y-E-A-H, but I can't spell yeah, whatever. Um, point is, 
That's what the book of Ephesians is going to be about. Hey, uh, if you trust in Christ, guess what God calls you? You're a saint now. What should you do? Well, you should kind of live like a saint. That's what he's going to call them to do. And in verse 2, he says, grace and peace to you. That's his way of saying greetings. I think there's some double meaning there because guess what he's going to talk a lot about in the book of Ephesians? Grace and peace. He's going to talk about what it means to be shown the grace of God, and then he's going to talk about the peace that we have with God. I mean, this book is like one of the best books in the Bible to describe the peace that the saints right now in this room have with God. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word Lord means master. Jesus is the Lord of all, which means he is your master. He's my master. We are his servants and slaves. That's who we are when we call Jesus Lord. Okay, So that's a lot of introduction, but look what he says in verse number three. He starts talking about God. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is, by the way, the best place for us to start. If you're trying to figure out who you are and how to live, the best place to start is for you to look to God first, because he's the maker. He's our creator. So what he starts out by saying is, blessed be God. That's a way of saying God deserves praise. He deserves glory. He deserves people to worship him. He deserves people to think highly of him. He deserves for people to say good things about him. And in our world, it's the exact opposite. People use God's name as a curse word. People make fun of God. People make fun of Jesus. They do the exact opposite of blessing him. And what Paul says is, God deserves blessing. God deserves praise. He deserves glory so much that if I were to live my whole life just to give him glory, it wouldn't even be enough for what he's done. Look what he goes on to say. He says, who, this is God, who has blessed us in Christ. That word blessed is the same word, but it's interesting. It says you should bless God because God has blessed you. Same word, but kind of two different meanings, right? Um, We bless, which means to praise or to say good things or to glorify God because God has given us a type of blessing. What blessing is he going to talk about? He says he's blessed us in Christ, so not on our own, but through Christ and in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, right? That's where a lot of people get lost, And they say, okay, I don't understand this anymore. Um, He's given us spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. This kind of sounds like we're just talking about make-believe, right? And if you're reading this honestly, you might say, kind of sounds like he's just making things up right here. He's not making things up. What he's saying is, in Christ, here's what God has done. God has blessed every person in this room who's a saint, who's a Christian, who's a follower of Christ. He's given you so many things in Christ, in your relationship with Christ, spiritual blessings, that are in the heavenly places. What does that mean? It means they're not here. It means that you don't have the same access here to them that you will have later. It also means that they're secure because they're not here. These people have gone through a lot where all their earthly possessions have been taken away, and they're not secure in this world. He says, don't worry, they're in heavenly places. 1 Peter 1 says, it's like they're kept in heaven for you, no matter what happens here on this planet, no matter what happens in your family, no matter what happens at your school, no matter what happens with your, with your life or what career you choose or who you're in a relationship with or whatever, like it doesn't matter what happens here. These things are in the heavenly places for you. Verse number four says, even as he chose us. Who's us? Well, Paul and the saints. Right? We can apply this to anyone who's a saint, anyone who's a Christian, but he's not saying he chose everybody. He's saying he chose some. He chose us, the saints. He chose us. When did he choose us? Well, in him. So who's him? This text has been saying Jesus, which means every real Christian has been chosen in Jesus, and we'll talk about what that means in a minute. But when did it happen? It happened before the foundation of the world. 
So I'm going to pause real quick and, and say, if I'm reading this right, and if you're reading this right, what it says is that everyone who's a saint, everyone who's born again, everyone who's a Christian, they have individually been chosen in Christ. So now they're going to be a part of the Christ group from before the foundation of the world. Like before you had a name. Like before you were born. Like before the world was created. Like before Jesus died on the cross. Like before there was sin in the world. That's what this is saying. So that's why this text kind of makes us step back and see salvation and, and see good things from God's perspective. It's like, no, no, no. You were not just chosen to be a Christian the day you decided to follow Christ. This started with God before he even made this world. That saints and Christians, those who know God, are secure and have been a part of God's election and his choice even from before the world was made. That's exactly what this passage is saying. That should blow your mind. That, that before this world was created, that before there were plants and trees and rocks, that God knew you and he has chosen you, if you're a Christian, to be a part of this salvation. That's mind-blowing. He goes on. He says he was, chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. What, what did he choose us for? Right? Did he just choose us to be on his dodgeball team? Did he choose us you know, to, to be a good musician? Did he, no, that's not what he's saying. He says he chose us that we'd be holy and blameless. Those are two sides of one coin. Holy means righteous. It means godly, holy. Uh, blameless means without blame. Right? Like There's nothing that someone could pin on you to say that you're evil or wrong. Holy and blameless. Here's the problem. If you know who you are, you know that those two things are not true about you. Even if you're a Christian. I would say, especially if you're a Christian, you know they're not true about you. If, you. if you're a Christian, you know that you're not holy on your own, and you're not blameless. In fact, you could probably list a whole bunch of things that make you blameworthy and make you ashamed of what you've done. You could probably list out all those things, but here's what this choice is all about, that God is going to do something to you that in his eyes, he's going to see you as holy, like you've done righteous, and blameless, like you've done nothing wrong. Okay? This is mind-blowing. Keep reading. Because he shows us to be holy and ways before him. This choice was not made arbitrarily. And what I mean by that is not just like randomly or not just like, oh, it didn't matter. God just kind of like eeny, meeny, miny, mo, catch a tucker by a toe. No, that's not how it happened. Look how it happened. Verse 5 says, in love he predestined us, which is the same concept as chose. Same idea. That just sounds like it's a, it's a bigger word, right? It's a different word in the original, right? It just means he, he chose us. He, he chose us for a destiny, so to speak. In love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. That's why this is a text that we're going to have to work our way through slowly through because you can tell every word is like jam-packed with like, well, what does that mean? Well, what does that mean? Here's what he's saying. God, from before the foundation of the world, has selected in love people to be holy and blameless before him, and he selected them in love in order that they would be called sons of God. Right? Do you notice that it, says, it doesn't say sons and daughters? You might be like, well, why is God saying that? Well, because back in the day, a son had the right to inheritance that not every daughter had. Some daughters got inheritance, but not every daughter. Okay? Um, sons in the Bible, and even in the Bible times, and even until recently, um, they had more rights to receive an inheritance. What this says is every Christian, whether you're a guy or a girl, you get the status in God's family as son who's going to receive inheritance. That's big. What kind of inheritance? What is he talking about? Is that we'd be 
adopted as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will and, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Okay? A lot of like technical language there. That's why we're going to take a long time to study this. But this passage is saying this to you, that if you are a Christian, here's who you are. You are chosen by God. You are chosen not just um, to be a person in this world. Everyone's a person in this world. But you are chosen to be his special person, his child, his son in his family, so to speak. Just like Jesus is his son, we're his adopted sons, and he's chosen us to do that. So what's our response? Do you notice how in this passage, it doesn't tell you to do anything? It doesn't tell me to do anything? That's the hard part about you know, teaching this text. It's like, well, what should we do about this? Well, I think what he's getting at is he's telling us, hey, this is who you are, and the whole point of the book of Ephesians is now live like it. If you're really chosen by God, and you're really a saint, and you're really blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and God has shown you this much grace, and if you start to understand the grace that God has shown you, what's our right response? It's to live like it. It's to live like the saint. To understand my identity is not in what I look like. It's not in my skills. It's not in what I have or don't have. It's not in my family. It's not in any of that. My identity is completely wrapped up in the fact that God has chosen me and I belong to him. That's the most important thing about me. If I was going to put anything on my name tag, it wouldn't be that I'm a musician or I'm an athlete or I'm a whatever. It's that I am a Christian. I belong to God. That is the most important thing about you if you are a born-again Christian here today. Once you start to understand God's grace and live like it. The two sections in this passage really um, are verses 1 and 2 and verses 3 to 6. Because I don't know if you noticed, but the passage, if you got your Bible out, the passage in Ephesians 1 just keeps going. Did you know that verses 3 to verse 14, that's 202 words in the original, and it's one sentence. It's one big run-on sentence, right? We put about a periods and commas and things like that because you know in English it doesn't really work but you could just have this big run-on sentence in the original language that Paul wrote it in and, and that's what's going on and what is it about it's all about salvation from God's perspective what has God done for me what is the grace that God has shown his people if you're gonna get the most out of this year point number one I'd love for you to write this down I want you to receive the letter of Ephesians as truth from God that's what the first two verses are all about Paul says hey I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm sent by him, by the will of God. I'm not just writing you my opinions, right? And that's why as you hear the sermons here, I, I hope that you just don't look at these as opinions. If you're reading it from God's word and I'm accurately teaching it, then what you're hearing is God's message for you and you need to receive it like that. Instead of brushing it off, instead of saying, yeah, I mean, I know the Bible says that, but that's not how I feel. Or I know the Bible tells me that that's right or that's wrong, but I'm not going to do that because, you know, that's not what I think is best. Okay, if this is God's message for you and it's God's message for me, then I, just like you, need to say, I'm going to listen to the book of Ephesians. I'm going to listen to the Bible. I'm going to submit to it, right? Whether I, I, I agree with it or not, whether I like it or not, that's what this message is. It's from God. So this year, hopefully, as you study it, I hope you receive it as truth from God. If you're ever going to receive instruction or correction or anything like that, with any source of authority behind it, you better trust the source of authority behind it. If someone was going to come up and correct you or instruct you and say, Here's, you should really do things this way, you'd probably think, like, well, who are you to tell me that, right? And, and that's kind of an okay response. I play golf, and a lot of people know I play golf, and they start to give me suggestions about, like, what clubs to buy, and like um, you know, how to swing the club. And you know my first response, my natural response to that is like, 
who are you to tell me? Like, you're not even good at golf. Like, are you going to tell me this? Are you going to tell me that? Some people who tell me it are good at golf. Mark McGill's good at golf. He, if you ever want to talk golf, talk to Mark McGill. Uh, he's pretty good. But if people, like, give me instruction, I, my first response is like, who are you to say that? Like, you're not even that good. Like, do, have you even tried those clubs? You think they're good? Well, recently, my wife ha- has been seen on our, our YouTube history that I've been watching uh, Tiger Woods, My Game. It's like a, <laughs> so nerdy. Um, it's like Tiger Woods explaining every part of his golf game and like telling you how to hit chip shots and how to putt and what to think and like where to put your hands. And it's like super cool. So I've been watching it. And every time I turn it on, my wife gives that sigh like, oh, are you really going to watch this? I'm like, oh, no, 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 it's okay. I'm just watching it. I'm just thinking like, what's Tiger saying, right? What's he saying about the golf swing? How sh- where should my hands be, right? How should I, how should my, what should my posture be? I'm always like eating it up. Do you know why? Because like I trust uh, his golf game, right? Maybe not his driving skills, but um I trust, sorry, uh, I trust in general his uh, mastery of the golf swing, so I'm going to listen to whatever he says, right? If he, if he were to give me a private lesson and tell me, you know, put your hands here, guess what? They're going there because I trust him, right? Here's the thing. Uh, if you approach this book of Ephesians in a similar way and say, I trust the source of authority. I know this is from God. I know the Bible is breathed out by God. It's his inspired word, as 2 Corinthians 3 says. That's why we studied that earlier in this year. We said, hey, 2 Timothy 3.16 says every scripture, every passage of scripture is breathed out by God. It's from God. And because it's from his authority, every passage that I look at is useful for teaching me, for reproving me, for correcting me, for changing my mind, for changing my thoughts. Like, that's what this book is meant to do. More than that, um, for Paul and these Ephesians, he had a lot of interaction with them. He knew them for years. In fact, in Acts 18, it says that he went into this city and he started preaching. And where he started was where Paul usually started, the synagogue. That's where the Jews were. He starts there because they have the Bible and they are expecting the Messiah. So he starts there. He preaches to them. He says, guess what? The Messiah has come. His name is Jesus. And he tells them to believe. And some people do. Some people don't. Later in Acts 19, he shows back up, and everything's going well. People are getting saved. It says so much so, Acts 19.10 says that everyone in the region, like all the people in the region where Ephesus was, they all heard something about the gospel. Like it made such an impact that there were so many Christians that people were telling other people, and there was attention that was brought to them. So much so that later in Acts 19, in that chapter, there was a riot that broke out. The riot broke out in this temple, the temple of Artemis, the big religious center there where there was a lot of money, a lot of things that were going on there because people didn't like that people stopped worshiping the idols. There were so many people that became Christians that they were losing business at the temple. So much so there was a time where all the Ephesians, the Christians, the saints, who got saved, they took all their magic arts, all their books, all the things that they used for idolatry, they brought it to the town square, and this is kind of crazy, and they lit it on fire. Said it was worth so much, it was worth like 50,000 pieces of silver, how much stuff they just destroyed. They didn't give it to anybody. They didn't say, well, maybe I'll just sell it on eBay. Like, maybe I'll get a couple bucks out of it. It's like, no, no, I don't want anyone to touch this bad stuff, so I'm gonna destroy it. That's what happened. That's how radically these people had their life changed by God. There was a riot in the town, and Paul had to leave. Paul left, and then he came back to a city called Miletus, and all the pastors who were in Ephesus walked down the mountain to the port where Paul uh, came, and he was um, talking to them. It's one of the longest speeches, actually, in the whole book of Acts. Acts 20, Paul talks to the Ephesian elders, the, the pastors who were there, and he says, hey, guess what? There's going to be hard times for your church. You've got to 
beware against that. You got to make sure that you're teaching the whole truth of God. And, and that's the main focus of his text, actually. He says, hey, you need to focus on teaching your people the whole counsel of God. He says, I spoke to you the whole counsel of God. You better do the same thing. If you were an Ephesian Christian and the pastors came back after talking to the Apostle Paul um, and you were taught the whole counsel of God, I hope that you would listen. And that's my point for you. As we study this whole book, I want you to say, I'm going to listen. I'm going to commit to being here. I'm going to commit to taking notes. I'm going to commit to taking in whatever God has to say because it's so important. Because it will tell you who you are and it will tell you how to live. We don't want to be people like the book of James talks about that are hearers of the word but never doers of the word. Right, and that's the problem for some of you who might come to church a lot. Maybe you're involved here and you think that you're, you know, you're good with God. Um, if you're just a hearer of God's word, right, and, and you know a lot of stuff, and the book of Ephesians just teaches you a bunch of information about God, that's a good start, but that's not the point. That's not the end. That's not the goal. The goal is that you would know what the book of Ephesians has to say so that your life would change, so that you would be living like the book of Ephesians says. Not just a hearer of the word, but a doer also. So in verse 3, Paul gets into the meat of what he's going to talk about. He says, I want you to see salvation from God's perspective. I want you to start seeing grace appropriately. Start understanding what God actually did for you, Christians. That's what point number two is going to be all about. Point number two, coming from verse 3 where it says, blessed be God. That's the closest thing to a command that we have, that you should praise God. And hopefully as you listen to this sermon and and then we sing a worship song at the end and i hope your response is i'm going to worship god because wow that really kind of blew my mind i've never thought of it that way or maybe you've thought of it that way but you maybe never have appreciated it as much as you do today that's my goal for you okay point number two i want you to constantly praise god for his saving grace constantly praise god for his saving grace as we use that word grace i think it's appropriate to finally finally define what that means because it shows up in our passage a lot. What is grace? Grace, the simplest synonym for it is gift. Okay? Um, it's a gift from God. Um, grace is the good that God has done to people who do not deserve it. Really, a better definition for grace is an undeserved gift. Okay? But if you start to think about what God has done, it's not just like a gift like he gave you a present or he gave you one thing. It's like if you start to understand grace from all these perspectives, like he's about to explain, it's like not only has God given you something, he's like made you, he's like let you do your sin and then he's called you out of that sin and then he's forgiven you of that sin and then he's given you all these blessings and now you're in Christ, now you get to be treated like Jesus deserved to be treated. That's what it means to be in Christ. So he's gonna like get at this from all these different perspectives but what I want you to do is see all of it, understand as much as you can understand and then step back and say, wow, that's what God's done? That, that's more than I thought. Wow, that, that's better than I thought. And, and if I really think about it, I don't give God the praise that he deserves for what he's done for me. That's the response I want you to have from this. That's what Paul's getting at. There was another time in the book of Romans where uh, for three whole chapters, Paul just starts explaining things about God. And he says, you know what? God chose people and they rebelled against him. But guess what? He's still got a plan for his people. And he explains all this in Romans 9 about the Israelites. Then in Romans 10 and then Romans 11. And at the very end of all that, in Romans 11, verse 33 to 36, here's what Paul says after explaining all this stuff from God's perspective. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable 
his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who will be his counselor? Or to whom has he given a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I want you to catch that last verse. For from him and to him and through him are all things. I want you to catch that. That means the whole reason you exist is for God. That's it. The whole reason you're saved, the whole reason you're in this building, if you're a Christian, it's for God. It's not even just for you. And sometimes for us, we kind of get that confused. We start to think that, okay, God saved me because he just really thinks I'm an awesome person. Well, he saved me. He put me in the family. He put me in because, you know, God just thinks I'm great. That's not the message of the book of Ephesians. In fact, it's kind of the opposite. Even for those of you who think you're good, the only reason you exist is to bring God glory and praise. Like, that's the primary soul focus. Why did God choose people? Why did God draw people? Why does God save people? Why did Jesus die on the cross? We usually have answers for those. You could you know, raise your hand and give the Sunday school answer. But do you know that behind all of those answers, the real one true answer is that God is going to get praise? Why does God do anything that he does? All of it comes back to us telling God how great he is. Right? That might be a hard truth, but that is what the Bible clearly teaches through this. That's what verse 6 is all about. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Why did all this happen? Because we can now turn back and praise God for it. And if you don't believe that, you're in verse 6. Look down at verse 12. So that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. And then in verse 14, it says, the Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In fact, that phrase is repeated three times, and that actually is going to be the the bookends of all the sermons we're going to go through, because he keeps saying, hey, God did this for our good, yes, but also to the praise of his glory. Now, God did this, which is awesome, for us, but to the praise of his glory. And God also did this, which is awesome, but also to the praise of his glory. In fact, the verses we're looking at, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, are all about what God the Father has done. Then the attention shifts over to Jesus in the next few verses, from verses 7 to 12, what we're going to look at next week, what it's talking specifically about what God the Son, Jesus, has done for us. And then verses 13 to 14 shifts its attention again to what God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, has done for us, all to the praise of his glory. And really, it's looking at one thing, salvation, from all these different perspectives, and it should leave us saying, wow. I've never thought about it like that. Wow. God is good. There's three big truths here, and you see those in the three subpoints that you have, A, B, and C here. Um, here's the truths that we should praise God for, right? Philippians 4.4 4 says that we should rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice, okay? That means these three truths should be the source of your joy this week when you don't feel like it, okay? So here's the three big truths. If you're a Christian, truth number one, A, um, God chose us. God chose us. That's a big truth. God chose us. He predestined us in love. You see that at the beginning of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. He chose us. You choose people for your dodgeball team based on how good you think they are at throwing a ball or dodging a ball. Um, You choose people as friends. A lot of you choose based on who you can get to know to get what you want. Sometimes you choose friends because you think they need something from me, so I'm going to invest in them. You make choices based on some kind of merit or some kind of thing that you're going to get out of it or thing that they're going to get out of it, right? That's how we make choices, right? Why do you like uh, mint and chip 
as opposed to cookies and cream? Well, because mint and chips better than cookies and cream. Hot take. Sorry about it. It's just, it's better. I just think it's better. We make choices based on what we like, right? So if I say God chose us, here's a temptation for you. You start to immediately think, I know why God chose me. I know why. I mean, do you know me? I'm awesome, right? That's why God chose me. That's why. That's not why God chose you, okay? And the Bible goes over the top to try to prove to you and to me that if you're chosen by God, it's not because you're impressive. In fact, oftentimes God picks the unimpressive people just to show that, yeah, they're chosen by me. Yeah, they're not the richest. They're not the most powerful. They're not the smartest. They're not the brightest. Whatever. I chose them just to prove to the whole world, everyone who thinks they're too smart for God, everyone who thinks that they're amazing on their own, just to prove to them that I'm in control. That's what God does. First Corinthians 1 teaches that. Also, another passage for you to write down. This is from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. This is about the Old Testament Israelites, but it's the same concept. Uh, they were a nation not very powerful. Just like even, you know, Israel today. It's not a big nation, right? It's small. Only 9 million people today in the nation of, of Israel. But even back then, it was smaller than that. And here's what God says to them, just in case they get proud. Just like I would assume in a group this size, we probably have some people who are Christians who are probably proud, who probably think they're better than the sinners they sit next to at school. Okay? It says, just a reminder for us, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. And we stop there and say, oh, why do they choose me? Probably because I'm good, right? Verse 7 says the opposite. He says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. Which I love that phrase. That's what it means to be chosen. That God sets his love on you. It says, it's not that you were more in number, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Right? If you know the story of the Israelites, they were in slavery for a long time, and then God saves them out of it. And here's what he says. It's not because you're, you're amazing. It's not because you're important. Actually, two chapters later in Deuteronomy 9, he says it's not because you're more righteous This is not because you're better at keeping my rules. In fact, the Israelites seem to be the worst at keeping God's rules. But he says it's because of me and my choice. Why are you a Christian today? Okay, It's not because you're born in a Christian family. It's not because you're a good person. It's not if you are a Christian here, it's because of God. That's it. That's it. Not because you. The reason I'm a Christian is not because of me. A lot of people sat in these Trudeau chairs right next to me, and, and they're not Christians today. And it wasn't because I did something. Because God chose, and God had a plan, and God drew. It was God. It wasn't me. If you're a Christian, it wasn't because of you. It's because of God, ultimately, in the end. The Old Testament doesn't just say that. The New Testament does, too. 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul says, Remember Jesus, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Right? That will really start to blow your mind if what you're thinking of is God chose me before the world started. He knew who I was. He knew all my sin. He knew all of that, but he still showed his grace to, cho- to choose me. Yes, that's what this is saying. If that's not blowing your mind, you're not thinking about it rightly. Or this might be such a 
common thing that you've thought of so many times that maybe doesn't make a difference to you, but it should make a big difference to you. Jesus said this to the people that were following him in John chapter 6, verse 37. John 6, 37 says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I think that went through. He says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. So where do the people come from that follow Jesus? Where do they come from? Who's the one who decided? Who's the one who drew them? Well, it says that God did that. And it's like God gave them to Jesus. And it says, whoever comes to me, Jesus says, I'll never cast out. So all the real Christians, the people who are following Jesus for real with a pure heart, Jesus never casts them out. He never says, nope, you're not allowed. Jesus said this in John 15, 16. John 15, 16, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask my Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Okay? Very interesting that the reason, if you're a Christian, that you are one, if you are, is not because you did something first. You're not the primary cause. You're a secondary actor, for sure. There's some involvement that you have in this process. I'm not saying you have no involvement. Obviously, you trust in Christ. You believe. You follow Christ. That's true, but where's the primary cause? It's it's God. He started all this. He's going to see it through. Jesus said this in John 10, John 10, uh, 27. John 10, 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father, who's given them to me, is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. It's a picture like the Christian is in Christ's hand first, right? That's what it says. It's like they're in Christ's hand and and they can't be snatched out of his hand. And then he says, they're also in my father's hand. And you know, no one can snatch them out of the father's hand. Right? If you're a Christian, that's where you are. You're kept safe. You can never be taken away from God. You can never be d- deprived of God's love and his care if you're a Christian because you're there. You're stuck. And it's a good thing. In God's love, in God's grace. That's what he says for real Christians, his people. You might be having the question, a lot of people ask this, well, how do I know I'm one of God's people? Right? That's a pretty important question. If he's saying you're chosen, like, well, well how do I know? That's a great question that you ask. How do I know I'm chosen, okay? Verse I want you to write down is 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5. There's no special um, meter that you can use. There's no special um, die or something that you could put on to say, okay, am I elect or not? Am I one of God's chosen or not? Okay, there's nothing like that. But there is this, and I think this is the closest we can get to this. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5. Here's what it says. Paul says, for we know brothers, loved by God, which he's saying, I know that God loves you. Why? He says that he has chosen you. For I know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How can Paul be so confident that they're chosen and in God's hand? How can he know that? Here's what he says, verse five. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. I mean, think about Paul, how many times he must have preached and like people heard it and like didn't do anything about it, right? That probably happened to him a lot. Happened to him more than you or more than me, right? He went and told so many people. A lot of them were like, okay, that's interesting. Okay, how about I stay, right? And they left. Paul says, I I know you're chosen by God. You know why? Because when the gospel came to you, it didn't just come in word. It didn't just come with a sermon and a handshake afterwards. That's not how it came. It came with power 
and the Holy Spirit and full conviction, your life completely changed. Later in that passage, he's going to say, you turned from idols to serve the living God. You gave up your sin. I saw it. Paul says, before I was in town, you know what? You were living your life. You were living how the rest of the world lived, but then you heard the gospel and there was power that happened. And guess what? Now your life is totally different. That's how I'm going to be 100% confident. You're totally, you're in. You're chosen because your life is different. He goes on. He says, for you know what kind of men we prove to be among you. Right? He says, look, you can, you can trust us on this one. I know because I can see in your life there's a radical transformation. Now, how can you say, how do I know? Well, you, you know when you look and say, yeah, God has changed my heart. There's been repentance. And when I put my faith in Christ, there's a total transformation. I'm not who I used to be. I don't love the things I used to love. I don't live the way I used to live, right? That's how I know. The problem is if you start thinking that way, if, our, if every last person in this group starts thinking, okay, like, does that reflect my life? The, the reality is m- most of us are gonna come to the conclusion, no, it doesn't reflect my life. It doesn't. Not deceived. I don't, I don't think that you know, 90% of the people who come to church are Christians, right? It's pro- probably 50-50, somewhere in there, right? M- maybe. That's a generous stat in a youth group. Right? We're not all in. Right? But here's what he's saying. If you're in, you're in. And how do I know I'm in? Well, I see this life change. God changed me. I'm not who I used to be. Ephesians says that God chose. He predestined in love. He did all that. But then he says there's a reason for it. You were chosen for a purpose. What's the purpose? That you would be holy and blameless. Okay? Holy and blameless. I said two sides of the same coin. You can write it down like this. Second sub point. God sanctified us. Okay? What's this grace that God's shown? What's saving grace? Well, God chose us and God sanctified us. That's a Bible word. What it means is that God made you holy when you weren't. And this is where a lot of people get confused. They think, okay, here's how I can become a Christian. If I just try to clean up my life and try to sanctify myself, and try to get good and you know, try to give up some things. That's what it's going to be for me to become a Christian. That's not how it works. God is the one who sanctifies you. He's the one who changes you. And actually what happens is in a moment, your whole life is transformed because now he takes away your sin. You're no longer guilty. First John 1, 7 says, if we know him, if we walk with him, he cleanses us from all of our sin. Actually, says the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We're going to get to that more next week because he's going to talk about that in our passage. But 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, after listing a whole bunch of sins that people lived in, a whole bunch of idolatry, sexual immorality, homosexuality, drunkenness, living for yourself, the party lifestyle, he calls out all this stuff. Greed, he calls all this stuff out. He says, people, you, you used to live that way. And then he says, and such were some of you Christians. A lot of you used to live like that too. You were in your sin, but you were washed you are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You used to live a shameful life that you should have been ashamed of, and now God has changed your life. Now, you don't even have to be ashamed of what happened before because you can know everything that I've done has been forgiven by God. That doesn't mean sin's not shameful. It's still shameful. But the problem is I don't have to look back in shame at my old life because it's taken care of. It's forgiven. God sanctified us. He calls me holy and blameless now, even though I'm not, even though I didn't earn that. He calls me that now. How? Well, through Christ, because Christ was blameless. You know, that's what happened when Jesus died on the cross. What happened was the blameless one takes on the sin of someone else. He takes on my sin when he died so that his righteousness, his good life could be put on my account. That's what happens in the gospel. That's what happens when Jesus died for our sin. And when you understand the gospel, it clicks. And you're like, wait a minute. 
You mean I can be forgiven in a moment and all of the good stuff that Jesus did can be put on me. And all I have to do is, is turn to him and trust in him and ask him and trust that he will do it. That's what it is to become a Christian. And the light bulb goes off. And you're like, yes. And you trust him. And what's happening in that moment from your perspective is you're trusted in Christ. But from God's perspective, what this text is saying is he chose you before the foundation of the world. And he drew you to that point. And he made you encounter the gospel. And he gave you a heart that would trust. And then you've trusted in him. And he changed your life. The Bible says he regenerates you. He gives you new life. And then he's going to adopt you all in this one moment when you get saved. That's what he's talking about. Titus 2 says that he has chosen us as a people for his own possession. And what we're supposed to be, this is Titus 2.14, says we're supposed to be zealous for good works. If you've been sanctified by God, your role now is, I've been sanctified by God, I better live like a saint. If God now is calling me a saint, and he's considering me a saint, I should live like a saint. I should talk like a saint. I should interact with other Christians like a saint. I should interact with the non-Christian world like a saint would. Well, yeah, exactly. In the Bible, sometimes that's a motivation for us. Colossians 3.12 says, As God's chosen ones put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Like because you're chosen, because you belong to God, here's how you should live. That's the whole point of the book of Ephesians. It's trying to get us to do that. Even Romans 8. Romans 8 is a really famous passage. It's very similar to Ephesians. If you could, you know, read any chapter of the Bible that will remind you of Ephesians 1, it's probably Romans 8. Romans 8.33 says, asks the question, says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Okay, God's chosen ones. Who can bring like a court case and say, okay, God, here's what they did, God. Do you know that that person that you, that is your person, that Christian, you know that they've done this sin? The question that Paul's asking is, who can bring a charge like that against one of God's elect people? He goes on. He says, it's, it's God who justifies. God can look at whatever information or whatever evidence could ever be brought out about you. And if you're elect and you're one of his people and you've trusted him, what, what he's saying here is you could bring that out and say, well, John's done this and John's done that. Don't you know, God, that John's done this? And the point is, it's God who justified. He already knows. He's already cleared that sin. He's already forgiven that sin. He's washed that sin. He's sanctified that sin. Whatever you could bring out, it says it's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Hey, who's to say, God, that person shouldn't be your person. That person's too sinful. Well, it's Christ Jesus who died. More than that, he was raised. And right now, he is at the right hand of God and he is interceding for us. So every time you sin, although, remember this, uh, when, when you get saved, right? Some of you have been saved and you know this. Um, what God forgives you of is not just what you did in the past. It's everything that you're going to do that's sinful in the future. So that if you were to sin tomorrow, which you will, and if you were to sin next week, do you understand that when God saved you, he didn't save you in a temporal, backward-facing way? He saved you completely. Anything that you will ever do, you're securing him. Like, do you understand? That's how salvation works. That's mind-blowing. Some of you think, well, I'm going to do my sin now and then uh, maybe want to be forgiven later. That's backwards. That's backwards. It doesn't make sense. Romans 8 also talks about adoption, which is where he goes next. The last thing, number C, letter C, um, truths that should make you rejoice in him. That he chose us. He sanctified us. He also adopted us. Romans 8 says that he adopted us. Ephesians 1 says he adopted us to be sons according to Jesus Christ. 
Romans 8 says that we're not just sons, we're not just related to God, now we're also heirs. So like the concept is in the Old Testament and even the New Testament, um, even recently, uh, if a father was going to give an inheritance to a son, what he would do is pass it down, but that son, if he had a lot of brothers, he'd have to share it among his brothers. That's the picture. It's like you don't belong to the family of God, you're not a part of it, I'm not a part of it, right? God brings us into it, And then when God the Father gives things to God the Son, guess who else he gives them to? Any of his adopted sons. So when God gives Jesus the kingdom, which the Bible always talks like that, like the Father is like giving as a gift to the Son the kingdom, right? This new world, our new bodies. Guess who else gets to share in all that stuff? Everyone else God's adopted, Every other adopted son, which includes all you guys and all you girls, which is why it's not weird that he says adopted sons. It's important he calls us adopted sons because we all get to share the inheritance. Girls, guys, doesn't matter. We get to share in all of it. He says he's made us heirs. And what that means is right now, we can have a close relationship with God because he's our father now. Where he was our enemy before, we can call him father. We can go to him. We can pray to him. Jesus already talked about that in John 15. That was part of the whole deal. You're saved. You know God. Well, then you get to pray to him. Romans 8, 29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed or changed into the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he also justified, he will also glorify. 1 John 3 puts it like this. Last passage, once you read John. 1 John 3, verses 1 and 2 says, See what kind of love. The Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Not saying we will be or one day we'll get adopted. And he says, no, Christians are right now children of God. He says, the reason why the world doesn't know that is that the world doesn't know him. The world doesn't know the Father. If anyone knows the Father, if anyone knows God, and then they get to know you, they're going to know that you're his kid is what he's saying. Beloved. We are God's children right now. And what we will be, all the fullness has not yet appeared. One day we're going to be changed. We're going to be even better. Life's going to get a lot better when we're in this new world that hasn't appeared yet. But we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. That's when everything's going to change for us. Recently, I had an interesting situation at my house. We woke up at like six in the morning and uh, there were police helicopters everywhere. I don't know if I told you this, but there were police helicopters above us, and they were shouting at us, not at us, um, but they were saying, like, hey, there's two suspects, two armed men, suspects. They're, you know, going through this area. If you find them, like, take cover, like, be protected from them. So we're like, oh, this is crazy, right? So is where we, we actually, we grabbed Eden. It was six in the morning, so we just got Eden. We just, like, put her between us, just kind of, like, laid there in bed, and we're like, this is so weird. Right, the, the, the police helicopters are right above us. And, and they kept circling. We thought, oh, maybe they'll go away. And they just kept coming back. They were like right over the top of us. They actually uh, closed part of a street because they were doing this manhunt looking for these two guys. I don't know what ever happened. I assume that they were found at some point. But it got me thinking like, man, what, what would happen if I was gone or at work and this same thing happened and I got my wife and my baby at home Right? And there's these two armed men, and they're looking for a place to hide. And maybe, let's just say, the worst thing happens, they break in. Right? I'm gone. They break into my house. 
my wife and my baby are there, my baby girl. And let's just say these guys were really trying to run for cover, but they were really stupid. So they said, you know what? We got to steal everything. So Alexandra and the baby, they have to run upstairs. This didn't happen. I'm just imagining this. Um, be really bad. You probably would know this before now. Um, but imagine they have to hide in Eden's room. And these guys are just ransacking the place, taking everything, stealing everything, taking the, 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 the sofas away, taking the TV off the wall, grabbing all, all the, 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 the iPad or the computer or grabbing everything they could find, grabbing our ice maker, our precious, precious ice maker, right? <laughs> Imagine they just take everything. And I get back home. Everything's gone. Everything that was valuable. And my wife and my daughter are in the corner um, scared and crying. At that point, I might hatch a plan, okay? I may or may not hatch a plan. And I may or may not want to track those people down, okay? <laughs> probably shouldn't do that. Probably should call police and have them deal with it. But naturally, that's what I'd want to do. I'd want to make a plan and say, oh, you guys did this? Great. You don't even know what's coming for you, right? It's going to be bad, right? That's naturally the plan that I would hatch. Um, Let's say I hatched a different plan. Let's say that I hatched a plan that said, okay, I'm going to find those guys. I'm going to find them. I'm going to bring them back to my house. I'm going to, with all the money that I have, replace everything that's in my apartment, all the TV, all the the sofa, the ice maker. I'm going to replace all of it. I'm going to buy it back. I'm going to put it there. I'm going to invite those guys to dinner, and I'm going to sit down, and I'm going to say, you know what, guys? You need a place to live. You are going to live with us now. You're going to be part of our family. You know, I was was saving for college for for Eden. Not anymore. I'm going to pay for your college. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to make sure your needs are taken care of. I'm going to love you, and I will pray for you for the rest of my life. All the love and that I would ever give to my baby girl, I'm going to give it to you now. You'd say, I'm crazy, right? You'd say, you don't understand people. That, that wouldn't even work. That wouldn't even help them, and you're right. Let's just imagine that in that process, I could change their hearts, and I could remake them, and I could turn them into people who, instead of hating what's good, love what's good. Do you understand what I'm getting at? God's plan of salvation is even greater than that. What God did in order to secure a people for adoption was even greater than that. He took people who were his criminals. You understand that every time we don't give God glory, we are stealing from him. We are constantly stealing God's glory. We are constantly sinning against him. But God hatched a plan not only to give us, give people what they deserve, but also a plan to show mercy and grace to people who don't deserve it. And furthermore, not just to forgive them and say, okay, now go free, it's okay, but to bring them in close to be a part of his family. That is what God did for us. It's even greater than that crazy plan that I would have hatched. God's grace is greater than that. He has a plan to forgive, to save, and to adopt, which is why if you ever ask the question, who am I, what am I here for? The beginning of that question, the book of Ephesians is gonna say a lot more about it. Today was just the start. But the book of Ephesians is going to say, if you're a Christian, you belong to God, you're chosen by him, you are sanctified by him, now it's time to go out and live like a saint for him. Let's pray right now. I want you to stand up. Stand up. We're going to pray and be dismissed. Let's pray to God right now. God, we are thankful for your good gifts. We're thankful that you do not abandon us. We're thankful that you have been so good to us. We understand that 
your word says that in eternity past, we were chosen to be adopted, to be sanctified and made holy. I pray that the real Christians in this room would relish in that, that we'd rejoice in you every day for that, that we rejoice always. We always have something to rejoice about. Ephesians 1 will give us that for the rest of our lives. Even if our life is hard, even if things don't go the way we want them to, understand that you have been good to us. You've shown us grace. I pray for the people right now who don't know you, that have not been shown this grace yet. I pray that you would draw them and bring them to salvation. For that they'd understand that they don't need to earn some status before you. They just need to call out on you to plead with you to forgive them of their sins and to make them a new creation and to adopt them. It's a thing that we're unworthy to do. And if we're thinking clearly, we are almost even ashamed to do it. But we know that your word invites us to and it promises us that those who come to you, you will never cast out. We're thankful for that promise. We're thankful that you've shown us grace. We pray that this year we continue to learn more about you and we grow in the knowledge and our lives living for you, glorifying you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, you guys are dismissed. See you on Wednesday night.